Hello, you're listening to Send in the Experts with Georgina Durrant. This podcast is all about teaching and supporting children and young people with special educational needs and disabilities, SEND. I'm Georgina Durrant. I'm the host of this podcast brought to you by Twinkle SEND. As a former teacher in Senko myself, I wanted to create a platform to share some of the amazing things that my guests are doing to support learners of SEND. So whether you're listening on your commute, tuning in whilst walking your dogs or curled up on the sofa with a nice cup of coffee, thank you so much for joining us. Today I'm joined by Katrina Lowry, who is the founder of NeuroTeachers, an autism and neurodiversity research, training, mentoring and coaching company. Katrina is neurodivergent herself and is passionate about finding simple solutions for inclusive practice. Hi Katrina. Hello. So we've followed each other on social media, I believe, for a little while, but this yeah. is the first time we've actually met um, and I'm really excited to be talking to you. Are you having a good week? Uh, well, do you know, it's it's good to be uh, the end of term. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was, yeah, it's been probably the most uh, stressful and unusual term that we've ever had in my 22 years of teaching um but yeah it's going okay yes I can imagine I'm so I wanted to start by talking about your experience of being neurodivergent yourself um the podcast is called sending the experts and I thought it was really important that we recognize that the experts in SEND aren't just experts because they've studied various diagnoses or taught children with special educational needs but the real experts are those who have diagnoses themselves and you're, you sort of span both of these because you're neuro, neurodivergent and you're a qualified SEN teacher, previous SENCO, et cetera, et cetera. So if we first talk about your childhood, when did you realise that you were neurodivergent? Well, yeah, I have Esther Ranson to thank. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so when I was around about eight or nine, Esther Ranson's daughter got diagnosed with um with uh, dyslexia yeah and there was a program on around about sort of like tea time call I think it was it wasn't that's life it was another one of hers this and is life or something this like is life that, yeah and, and she and she was on there once so she was talking about her daughter and my brother and I were watching it and we'd always had quite different experiences of school insofar as I've always had really good general knowledge but reading and writing I really struggled with and it just seemed like you know gobbledygook to me most of the time when I was a child and my brother who's 18 16 months younger than me Mm -hmm. was way ahead of me like streets ahead of me and yeah I sort of knew I wasn't really stupid but I felt like there was a difference my brother said to me this is my recollection of it my brother said to me oh why that sounds a bit like you Trine actually and so we went to speak to my mum and said you know we've just seen this program about this thing called dyslexia (laughs) And then, you know, my my mum sort of went, oh, no, it's very rare because at the time it was the 80s and that's what people thought. But eventually they decided to get an educational psychologist involved. And um, he was this this man called Dr. Carl, who was a very stereotypical looking, you know, with a beard and, you know, grey sort of wavy hair and half moon glasses, who did this these series of tests, they were like these puzzles um, because, you know, obviously like it's a psychometric test and Mm -hmm. it just seemed like doing a load of puzzles. And then at the end of it, he wrote this big uh, report on me, which I still have actually. I do, that's interesting. um, Yeah, Yeah, it is. It's really interesting to read actually, um, which said that uh, I was dyslexic and that, you know, basically, although my vocabulary was at about the age of 13 because I knew words like carcinogenic and ecclesiastical, but I couldn't spell the word honey. 
Right. So there's so, a real difference yeah, between. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so basically it was that classic patchy profile. Yeah. But it being the 80s, um, my head teacher's reaction was to put me in the remedial class. Right. Which meant that I had to go to this little shed down the bottom of the school field, which was really cold. And I had this lovely woman called Mrs. Solly, who was delightful. But basically, we just seemed to do quite a lot of colouring in and handwriting. And it didn't really massively help. But also as well, the other children in the class called us the REMS which is okay. pretty disgusting if you think yeah. about it now. But, you know, it was the 80s. It was a crazy time. Um, and so that was like the help that I got given in school was to go and sit in a shack at the bottom of the school. Oh, field. my goodness. And it was really cold. I hardly emphasize how cold, and cold it was to you. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, and then my parents basically, I mean, I'm in a quite a fortunate position. My parents are quite, you know, they've got decent jobs. They're both psychiatrists, they're doctors. So they had decent salaries, so they were able to pay for me to have private tuition. Yeah. So basically from the age of around about 10, pretty much all the way through my A-levels, I had at least one private tutor for one subject or other. Yeah. And I didn't have any specific dyslexia tuition, but no. that was what helped me. And then I got, I did get extra time in my GCSEs and A-levels, but it wasn't really until I went to university, I had this amazing dyslexia tutor called Tanya, who just like explained how my brain worked to me. Wow. And she was awesome. She was amazing. And she, it pretty much changed my life. She pretty much persuaded me that I could actually be a teacher as a dyslexic person because I was originally a modern languages teacher as well, yes. which people think is quite unusual for a dyslexic person. I was going to ask that. Yes, that does seem an unusual choice, perhaps, but not for you. Well, no, I mean, I, my main my main subject, my my degree in my original PGC is in German and German is a phonetic, a phonetic language. Mm-hmm. So I found I could spell better in German than I could English. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because it's a phonetic language. Um, French wasn't so much, wasn't so easy, but I'm I'm quite an auditory learner, so I do yeah. pick languages up quite quickly. And like, you know, I can just hang around with some Korean people, and I'll pick up the odd word, that sort of thing. <laughs> it, it's just a thing that because of I'm an auditory learner, it actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and there are there are a disproportionately high number of dyslexic people on my languages on my modern foreign languages course at uni. So yeah. I, I never, I've never studied that. I mean, to be honest, I've never really studied dyslexia very much because I am dyslexic. Um, and then the bipolar diagnosis didn't happen until I was 32. I had um, okay. quite a significant manic episode when I was, when I was, um, no, sorry, I didn't actually get diagnosed. I was 32. I had a significant manic episode when I was 22. I had a car crash and it, oh, gosh. it just sort of, it was, you know, and PGC is years is stressful enough anyway, but yeah. it just, because I came out of it really well, I sort of, it sort of um, triggered some delusions in me that I was now impervious. Oh my goodness. So the, the car accident actually, so the car accident was the trigger then for? Yeah, it was the trigger for the manic episode. Gosh. And I probably had had some like um, mania before that, but yeah. it wasn't anything that was severe enough to be medicated. But for that one, I was actually hospitalized um, for about two weeks. And then I was a day patient for about three months. That Gosh. was, you know, the, the, the health service was much better in those days though. Yeah. So as a child, the bipolar, you weren't aware of, of that well, as a child? I was, I was or... aware of it insofar as I did have kind of what I would now describe as hallucinations, but I just right. felt like I just thought everyone else was seeing what I was seeing. Yes, so I didn't really know. Yeah. Um, my perception of the world was somewhat radically different. And I think that that's kind of why 
it's appealed to me to kind of get really involved with the autistic community and why I decided yeah. to study autism is because a lot of the sensory experiences that have been described to me by autistic people are very similar to what I experience. Yeah. I mean, you know, I probably have some kind of sensory processing disorder alongside of the lovely kind of fruit salad of my own neurodivergence. I'm only diagnosed with two conditions, but I probably have more than that. Yeah. Because, um, like, I mean, statistically speaking, you know, there's a 70% chance that if you have one neurodivergent condition, you're going to have another one or so or more. So there's a lot of things that kind of like I can, it resonates with me. Yeah. Um, autism. And that's I, throughout my, t- my teaching career, I kind of meandered into special needs. I didn't make have a deliberate part. Yeah. I was, it. I was looking at your sort of career history. And to be honest, it's similar to mine because I was a science teacher. Then I was uh, a deputy head in science. And then I went into being a Senko after that. And it's sort of a similar route to you in the sense that you were a modern foreign languages teacher. Then you became head of history. Is that right? And I've then, had, yeah, I was, I was, I've been head of, um, German head of year, <laughs> all sorts of things. Brilliant. And then from that, you decided you wanted to become a Senko. Is that correct? Well, yeah. I mean, what it was, there was one particular child who, shall I tell you the story? Yes. No, I've written this down. Yeah. I, yeah. I think you've mentioned it in something else that I was going to ask you. Is this Colin, a year eight student called Colin? Is this the one? Yeah. So I met this year eight student called Colin who um, he had a. Uh, uh, global delay and autism I was in a mainstream year eight class and they were uh, difficult uh, yeah. difficult so there's 32 of them I had every kind of need in there plus I had quite because we were right by at Heathrow airport so I had quite a lot of new arrivals as well so okay. I had some kids from Kosovo and it was yeah they were a lively bunch and I didn't have a TA or anything in there but I had Colin who who was in the old-fashioned sense statemented and um, mm-hmm. one of his his targets was to learn to copy yeah. Um, so I thought I had it sorted because I'd, you know, not been qualified very long. And I was like, right, <laughs> know exactly what to do with Colin. That confidence that you have is like exactly. a new teacher like, when you practice. Te- <laughs> I've been teaching two years. I know everything now. Um, so, yeah, so he, we had the words up in, we had uh, some fruit six fruit up on mm-hmm. the the it was an o- overhead projector that's how long ago it was nice and uh some pictures of fruit and then underneath the word of fr- the word in french and he had to copy the word onto the worksheet where i got done the pictures and he had to copy the words and he was right at the front mm-hmm. and i told him what to do and i walked off and his head was down and he was writing and i was all chuffed because i was like <laughs> yeah definitely and then i went back to go and have a look at what he'd actually written oh, no. and um he'd written a word that started with f underneath each one of the words oh dear. which was not what I put on the board no, by the way I just want to make it just... clear that I didn't put that word on the board <laughs> um and uh, I said um Colin you were supposed to copy the words he said yeah I did copy the word and he pointed to where someone had carved with a compass oh, no. on the desk said f word in really large writing oh bless him so we done what you you asked really I asked you to copy the word just didn't say where the word was did I I hadn't made it very very clear that I wanted to copy that word and not the word that was right in front of him and this was the word that was nearest to him so we copied that one can I how did you handle this Katrina what did you say um well it was immediately at that point that you know my youthful uh exuberance (laughs) about the fact that I knew everything about teaching after two years of teaching kind of like went out the window I thought oh my god I don't know anything yeah so I I basically said thank you Colin 
Mm-hmm. Right. I gave him the next piece of work. I took what he'd done down to the Senko and I said, how do we fix this? Yeah. And uh, she found it hilarious and everybody found it hilarious and they didn't really help me. And so I just thought, right, OK, well, I've got to do a better job with giving instructions because I'm clearly not giving in yeah. instructions properly. And then I changed the way I did that. Now, when you're a languages teacher, you have to do quite a lot of, you know, you know it's very you know you you are very demonstrative anyway but I started to put that more in and then I would always check back in with Colin that he knew what he must do exactly down to the detail and I just got much better at my instruction giving him my questioning and did that work for him it did it did work for him um you know he 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 did all right in the end because it was right by Heathrow, like I said, and he got a job packing boxes in the airport. Yeah. Brilliant. Which you can earn decent money from and yeah. he actually really enjoyed. So, yeah. you know, he turned out to be all right in the end. But it, yeah, I mean, you know, it just, he, I would say, yeah, he definitely, Colin definitely changed my life. And that was what made me want to go into special needs. But I had no idea how yeah. do you become a Senko? How do you get into special needs? Yeah, I don't think you told the route. I wasn't. I definitely wasn't no. told a route. I don't know if there is a you know a route into it, no, so I to don't speak. Think there I think is. people seem to meander into it or find their sort of calling in a sense, don't they? They see have that moment like you had and think, actually, this is what I want to be doing. This is the difference I want to make. Do yeah. you think being neurodivergent yourself helped you want to be a senko? Do you think it or helped you when definitely. you were a senko? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, as I say, like I. Like from the moment I met Colin, I, I wanted to understand like, and then there was also another child who quite early on in my career who, who had ADHD. And I was really interested in finding out how his his way of experiencing the world was, how his brain worked and everything. And yeah. I became quite interested in brains to an almost nerdy sort of level <laughs> fairly early on. And, you know, found all of that really, really fascinating. Um, as again, it's really interesting because I know virtually nothing about dyslexia. Like as a dyslexic person, I don't know virtually nothing about bipolar. I never research or read anything about those two conditions because it's my lived experience. Yeah. Whereas if you, you know, dyslexia, uh, sorry, so autism, ADHD, other neurodivergent conditions, I'm f- absolutely fascinated by and I can't find out, I can't, you know, like absorb enough information. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I, I sort of always really had a kind of affinity to, to autistic um, students. And I always felt like I really learned a lot from them. Yeah. Like, you know, their perception of the world and the, their, I, I like the, the honesty. I like the honesty. Yes. I like the, the fact that you're definitely going to get an honest answer out of things. I and I like the humour involved. And, I- I once had, when I was, it just reminded me, I had an autistic student in my class when we had an Ofsted inspection when I was like a young teacher. And we'd had the Ofsted inspections in quite a lot because we were a school in special measures. And once, and the kids would normally, as they do, just sit there and Ofsted inspector would come and sit in the back and no one would say anything because they, they understood. And there was one autistic little boy who was sat there and the, the inspector sat down and he said, what are you doing in our classroom? And it was brilliant. <laughs> And I thought, not one child of the however many te- you know children I have taught has questioned why we've got an observer in the classroom. And this look, good on him. He needs we need somebody to say it because everybody's thinking it. Why is somebody in our classroom? Oh, I, <laughs> it was I just, just the best question. And yeah, I love that. It's like 
I know. I just, I love that. I mean, like I also as well, I would like to say, I would like to also actively encourage people to go and uh, teach in schools that are on special measures or on RI because you get so much more training and so much more experience in those schools. And like you get the best sort of like training. Yeah, training. You get tons of training. Absolutely. It's amazing. Second, second only to be working in a in a pupil referral unit, I would say, in the level of training and the level of ex- you properly learn your craft. Absolutely. Like that. Well, so how what <laughs> what year of teaching were you in when um, your school was in special measures? Then were you in? Because I, I think uh, I was in. That was that new. was the one with Colin. That was my second yeah. year. Yeah, that I was, think we were they, similar. They made me they made me head of German, and I was all fresh faced and twenty three. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, no, it was similar similar for me in that, yeah, my, I was a very new teacher, school in special measures. And actually, I learned so much because you, you, I think the good thing was I wasn't, the expectation on me wasn't that high because I was a new teacher. So you yeah. sort of learnt, you just were able to be a sponge and just took up all this training and learn so much from the people that came in. Yeah. Now you've got all this experience with special education needs. If you could go back in time what support would you have liked as a child? And do you think it would have made a difference if someone, if you could go back in time and give yourself that support as a dyslexic child, what would you have wanted? Oh, yeah, I would have liked Tanya, my university <laughs> dyslexia to come back and help me at the age of yeah. nine. Um, because I was like, you know, look, I was labelled in, I was labelled as a yeah. REM, you know, I mean, like, like how offensive yeah. is that now? I find, I mean, the thing is, I always laugh about it, right? My therapist always, always says that I, I always just use humor when I get to tragedy, but I do find it quite funny because it's just like, it's so ridiculously mm. offensive and old fashioned. Like, how did it happen? Now. Yeah. How did they get to where you've been able to say that? How did they even think it was okay to label kids yeah. that, you know? And it wasn't just the teachers, it was the other children as well. So yeah, I mean, what I would have really liked would have been acceptance mm-hmm. and also somebody to say to me, do you know what? Like you might, you know, your reading age might be quite low and your spelling might not be that great. But at the end of the day, you're going to end up with a master's yeah. degree and a 21 year teaching career and a highly successful yeah. business. And if somebody could have told that nine year old me that I would have, you know, like I've, I've written two research papers, you know, I regularly write blogs. I mean, you know, thank God for technology, to be honest, because I write everything with voice to text. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I use voice to text. This is the thing, right? Um, I I don't write yeah. stuff. I get my voice Fantastic. to write things, and then I get this. I get my my laptop to read it back to me, so I can check all the typos and mistakes yeah. that way. And that's how I write everything. And I write it really quickly yeah. then as well. It's about twice as fast as typing anything. That's fantastic. Um, and and so you know the other thing is as well is to it, I would have liked somebody to tell my nine year old self that's okay there's going to be tech that yes. will help you yeah and it's a shame at the moment isn't it that there is that tech out there and it's not been always utilised um, effectively for students I know sometimes it is but not not everyone's got access to this when it could be helping dyslexic students well no I mean I think that's the thing about it is um, in terms of uh, teacher training in neurodiversity, neurodiversity. So Wales is a little mm-hmm. bit ahead insofar as they're going to make it compulsory that everybody has as part of their initial teacher training, uh, some training in, in SEND and neurodiversity. And this is going to have to be uh, updated yearly, yeah. annually, so that everybody has the most recent research and thinking and everybody feels kind of empowered. 
in England, we don't have that sort of like compulsory. You know, you need really at least an inset day a year. I mean, it wouldn't have to necessarily be six hours and there's all you send (laughs) done sort of thing. I think it should be a drip drip effect where you have, you know, a a twilight here and there sort of thing throughout the year. So it's it's on your mind. But a lot of the time when when staff can't do stuff, it's because they genuinely don't know what to do. Like they don't like differentiation is, you know, a drum we've been banging for a good 20 mm-hmm. years now. And nobody taught me how to no. differentiate. I just used to make tons and tons That's of exactly different That's exactly what I was going to say. I think when in my teacher training, differentiation was about, here's a worksheet, let's make five copies of it. And that's not differentiation yeah. really, is it? No, not really. I was going to ask you as well. So you've published two articles for the Good Autism Practice Journal. Um, your fir- I've read your first one from 2018, which was on extreme demand avoidance and ADHD. Really, really interesting. And mm-hmm. one part that stuck Thank with you. me was um, it said, if ASC EDA is not understood, staff can perceive demand avoidance as a moral choice and resort to punishment and sanctions rather than support and positive intervention. And that, I found that quite difficult reading, if I'm honest. It's, it's upsetting, isn't it? That that can happen and it does happen that people it see happen. it as a choice that children are misbehaving when it's not it's not their choice so could you just define for mm. our listeners what um extreme demand avoidance actually is okay well um since i wrote that my thinking okay. on this has changed but then this is the point about research mm-hmm. isn't it is that in the light of new information your thinking changes so um the national autistic society describe Uh, extreme demand avoidance otherwise known as pathological demand avoidance as um, a subset of autism whereby uh, children have extremely distressed behavior emotional dysregulation and this can cause extreme unusual and it's described as being mercurial insofar as there will be rapid changes in the mood or behavior presentation of the child um now the thinking is there's a uh, somebody else who I follow on Twitter who has really changed my ideas about is an autistic writer called um Richard Wood who uh, talks about demand avoidant mm-hmm. phenomena uh, insofar as his argument is that it's not just something that autistic people experience but other people with other neurodivergent and actually to be honest neurotypical people okay. can experience a demand avoidant phenomena which is caused by extreme stress or trauma and I think demand avoidant phenomena kind of really works really well as an idea because I think I've certainly been demand avoidant times Mm -hmm. during my life you know I have two neurodivergent conditions I have one one severe mental health condition and you know yeah I can be a bit demand avoidant if I'm honest with you (laughs) so to this article then if you tell us about it there was um a boy called jack it centers around a boy called jack yes um what were the strategies in place put put in for him then can you just tell sort of summarize what it said well initially initially he had a diagnosis of autism uh but he didn't and he and they were looking at adhd mm-hmm. at the time when i just got in in with him um but what we realized quite quickly is because the the ta in the class was very skilled with um with autistic children. She'd worked with a lot of different autistic children. She had a high level of training. The teacher was an NQT, yeah. which was amazing. She was like, like you said, she's like a sponge. She totally absorbed everything really quickly. Um, so we realized quite quickly that the autism strategies were yeah. not working. The typical autism strategies are things like having timers and having now and next boards and visual timetables in the traditional sense 
um, and using, you know, the teach approaches where you had kind of like um, closed tray work activities yeah. and a workstation was just not working okay. at all for him. Um, and his his main thing was that he liked to pretend to be a, a tiger and he would be he couldn't use a pen because he had tiger oh. paws. And, you know, there were various things like that where he he would get stressed and he you would have to the way in which the teacher just automatically learned this is that you had to kind of go into his world and become part of like what he was doing so if he was being a tiger you had to be a tiger Mm -hmm. with him and as long as you know you could carry him out and then you could bring him back out and he would calm down and become you know usual jack who wasn't so much of a tiger anymore um and then so we did the uh the extreme demand avoidant questionnaire which is written by liz Mm -hmm. onions which is available on my Facebook group in case you would like a copy. Um, and he turned out to have quite an, quite a high level of demand yeah. avoidant behaviours going on. And the paediatrician agreed that that was something that would be useful as a descriptor. It's not a diagnosis as such, but it is a descriptor yeah. of behaviours. And that gave the school the confidence to ask me to do some training with them first of all in basic autism strategies and then also in demand avoidant behaviors and then we did something we wrote what I call a consistent behavior support plan because the idea is that all adults would use the same set of strategies with Jack so every adult in the school that was likely to come into contact with him and that meant you know the receptionist the midday supervisor everybody and it was a very small school only 11 staff in total very small countryside school. Everybody knew the strategies that you use, but because he's demand avoidant, you couldn't necessarily say that this strategy would work in this case and this strategy would work in this case. What you needed was kind of like 10 strategies and today you'll do two and seven and tomorrow you'll do three and eight. So, you know, it it was, I I describe it as being consistently inconsistent. So everybody had like a plethora of different strategies. Today we're all being tigers for example. So everyone who comes into contact with Jack, he's being a tiger. So we're all going to be tigers today. So all the adults in the school were going around (laughs) growling and having paws and fluffy ears. So yeah, I mean, I think once everybody understood the most important thing about demand avoidant phenomena is that it comes from a place of of fight or flight. It comes from a place of stress. Um, Autistic people have a third more cortisol than um, neurotypical peers. And people who have demand avoidant phenomenon have even a higher level yeah. of cortisol. So basically they're wallowing around in stress most of the day. So they are, everything that they do is distress yeah, behavior. It's quite upsetting, isn't it? When so you think you about understand- it. Well, it, it is, but there are, you see, the thing is, if you know that and you understand that you've got to assume that he's stressed unless you yeah. know he's calm and using, you know, Damien Milton, who's another really great autistic writer who I've learned a phenomenal amount from before. So, you know, basically explained in one of the lectures that I was in that you have to assume that an autistic person is stressed unless you have good, good, um, uh, very good um, uh, uh, knowledge yeah. that they're not, in which case they might be like, for example, asleep, in which case yeah. they probably aren't stressed. But if they're awake, then they probably are a lot more stressed mm-hmm. than you are. So if you assume that and you're always going for, for de-escalation, you know, and you're always going for calm and you're always trying to get them to that calm alert state, then you're probably yeah, going to be okay. That's really interesting. So just for our listeners, cortisol is the stress hormone, isn't it? That's the, um, yes. yeah, that makes sense. And it's a higher level um, in autistic people. Yes, yeah, so cortisol, cortisol is, is is that kind of like fight or flight 
uh, hormone that, that comes out if you it's really useful if you want to run away yeah. from a bear but it's not that useful if no. you've got a maths test. <laughs> so these strategies that you put in place for Jack, did they work? Was he happier in school mm. as a result? As a result of it, were you able to follow it up? Yeah, no, it wasn't no. quick. Okay, this is the other thing about none of these strategies are quick, right? This we've got to get rid of this idea of this six to eight week yeah. cycle because, in my experience with with children who have highly distressed behaviours, it's going to yeah. take a year. Okay, so we did reduce incidents. We reduced incidents quite significantly, relatively quickly, but it didn't get down to absolutely nothing yeah. ever. But he did manage to complete the rest of primary school without having a fixed term. And he only had one fixed term exclusion when he was in year seven. And to be honest, that was Christmas yeah. week. So, you know, but he's he's in yeah. secondary school and he's doing Good. really, really well. And the transition for him to secondary school, were you able to follow follow that and see how that went? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't directly working with him by then, but I, I work with his secondary school. So I'm, you know, and also as well, I know I got to yeah, know his mother no, really well imagine. in this situation. Um, and she's a former head teacher wow. too. So, you know, so he, he, he had a very clued up bunch of adults yeah. around him. You know, there's a family history of autism. So the whole family kind of knew what was going on and understood that. So, you know, I'm a relational practitioner. In that case, it was very easy to be relational because absolutely everybody was on board yeah. from day dot. So that makes it much easier. It's not a hard sell then, is it? When everyone's going, yeah, do you know what? We really need to reduce exclusion for this child because he's been excluded loads of times. Yeah. He's only seven. So if everyone's going, yes, that's absolutely what we need to do, then it just makes my life a hell of a lot easier because I can go in and say, okay, well, I know how to do this. So yeah, let's try you it. faced, do you have many where that isn't the case where parents or the teachers or whoever aren't on board as much as you would like? Well, it's the thing is like, so my, my, my most recent paper is on, is on yes. persistent absence and autism. Um, it's not available for general release yet. It, I, I, you know, if, if people want a copy for informational research purposes, then they can contact me through mm -hmm. my website, which is www.neuroteachers.com. Um, but basically in that it's, it's, so my whole kind of mission is to reduce exclusion to a point where, you know, it really becomes yeah. unnecessary. Okay. Now I, I, I have um denied about this. And I think at the moment we can't completely do away with exclusion because we don't have mm -hmm. an alternative. And there are some very, very extreme cases where the child needs to be yeah. not in that school. Um, but until we have a good alternative for that, it's gonna, uh, unfortunately I come to the conclusion that it has to remain as a final thing, but I would like that to be, I would like there to be less than tens yeah. of kids a year. At the moment, there's 8,000 children a year being excluded. And there's, you know, we're getting up to around about 100,000 children a year who are, who are having persistent absence. So persistent absence is any absence which is over 91, uh, under 91% of yep. full attendance. So, um, yeah, it's something like 15% of kids at the moment are experiencing persistent absence. It's obviously yep. got worse because of the pandemic. And it's much worse against uh, amongst neurodivergent children and 43% of the children who have persistent absent yeah, autistic. Yeah, so your second paper is about sort of autism and anxious non-attenders. So what, what do you think the link yeah. is between autism and the attendance, basically? Um, I think it's about the anxiety. So when, like, I did a um, a talk about this in the summer, which was called Every, But Everyone Gets <laughs> Anxious. And the thing is that what, so you were asking me about schools and hearts and minds. And the thing is about it is everyone does get anxious and people... Teachers will say that out of the goodness of their heart because they're talking about being a bit anxious about your driving <laughs> test. 
you know, they're not talking about persistent, long-term clinical levels of anxiety, right? When we have a child who is persistently not attending, it is because they have, well, the statistics tell us that mostly it's because of anxiety. And often this is because of school-based trauma. And that is a very difficult pill to swallow as a teacher because we Mm -hmm. love our kids. We go into teaching because we love kids and we really want them to do their best. And if you're a secondary school teacher, it's because you love your subject. And if you're a primary school teacher, it's because you love your age group and you love your kids and you look forward to seeing them. And even though you're absolutely exhausted in the holidays, you miss them, right? And when one of your kids is not turning up, right? This is the re- the reason this happens is because it's very difficult to be reflect. So we get so much, we get hammered all the time, yeah. teachers, don't we? Like the press is just always after us. The government will always blame teachers. You know, goodness me, every week there's some kind of headline. So it's a tough job to do because you get everybody's got an opinion about it. And then you know, one of your kids stops stops turning up. It's all too easy to either blame the kids or blame yeah. the parent, right? And that is that's what the data tells us is that most teachers would have the perception that it's either a problem with the child or it's a problem with the parents, okay? But if you survey the the the, um, the parents and the kids, they will tell you the reasons are to do with mental health, which is usually school-based anxiety caused by a trauma at school, or to do with sensory needs, yeah. okay? So the problem is, is that we've got it's not going to work to get the kid back into school because we've got two massively different yes, opinions. everyone's not on the same page right? there at all. Nobody's on the same page. So you're already off to a bad yeah. start, okay? So once you get them both on the same page and you, you right, you have to accept someone's lived experience. Mm-hmm. As a neurodivergent person myself, right, if I tell you that I'm having an experience, it's because I'm having an experience, Okay, so you've got to go with people's lived experience. So if that parent and that child tells you they've got mental health problems or sensory perception problems, then that is what you have to, that's the first thing you have to do is accept that that is true. Okay. The second thing to do is that it's going to take time. On average, these interventions that I do with these kids take a year. Okay, now that's average. Okay, so in my my, um, study, it was between six and 22 months. It's quite probably a lot longer than most okay, so, people are expecting. Exactly, because they think that the kids are going to go back after six weeks because they had an exit card and someone met yeah, them at the door. Or if it does work, it's probably not going to work in the long term. It could be a short fix and then it's, it's gonna, not going to work. It's going to happen again. Yeah, it's, there's no such, right, okay, you cannot do this quickly. It has to be long term. It has to take, you have to take yeah. your time over it. If you really want to get that child back in full time, then you're going to mm-hmm. need a year. Right, and you're going to need to have a plan that both the child and the parents agreed to. And the third thing that is really, really important is that everybody needs to be relational. So even if you don't like what the t- what the parent is saying, and you don't even like the parent, you don't agree with their parenting choices or anything, in front of that child, as far as you're concerned, you're completely on the same page. And if you're the the parent and you think the school's doing a terrible job, right, in front of the child, you need to be saying. They're doing a great job. They're doing everything they can for you. I totally trust them. Because if the child gets wind that this party doesn't trust this party, then they're not, it's not going to do anything to reduce their anxiety. Absolutely not. That's really interesting. Um, Really, really interesting. So is that something you you do as your day job then? Is are you working with schools and working with children and working with families and trying to help with sort of attendance? 
Yes, mainly. I mean, me- the main part of my work at NeuroTeachers is uh, intensive mm-hmm. support. So I'm either working with kids who are close to exclusion or I am working with children who I who are doing what I call self-excluding yeah. um, due to extreme anxiety. And, you know, I have, uh, you know, largely speaking, I work online these days, but I do go to schools. I'm quite happy to come into schools as long as, you know, COVID yeah. restrictions. Um, but, you know, I've had international students. I've got one that I'm working with in oh, Italy wow. at the moment. And yeah, I've got a few other, the Canada, Middle East, but generally speaking, it's yeah. the UK. And, you know, I'm working, I'm working to try and improve attendance and trying to get kids back into school because that's where yeah. they want to be. I mean, I do, I do training as well. Obviously I do do massive amounts of training and, and, and uh, events on these, these subjects, but my kind of day to day very often is working with individual children and the, the teams around them. I mean, I'd like to be doing much bigger pieces of work, like maybe across academy trusts or across local authorities to try and really improve to lower exclusion of yeah. all the kinds. Um, uh, and that's, that's coming gradually. Um, but you know, it's, it. I think it's just ever so important and both both um, exclusion and persistent absence are just massively on yeah. the rise now, and it, it generally is the neurodivergent and autistic community who who are really having the big yeah, the brunt absolutely. of it. Do you think the pandemic? I know obviously the pandemic has caused problems with attendance for that reason, but um, do you think as well it's impacted on autistic children in particular in changing their routine, changing all of that side of things? Do you think it's made it your job needed more in a sense? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm inundated, <laughs> but still, but still call me. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, right. So for example, I did a, a, a Q&A a while ago and there was one, one particular school where they sent along the, um, one of the special needs uh, teachers and they said, okay, well, the thing is like, she stopped attending since the pandemic and she doesn't really understand why she can't have her lessons online. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, can she have her lessons online then? She went, they went, oh, well, the, the, we just, we're not doing it anymore. I was like, well, you did it yeah. before. Were you doing blended learning before? And they said, yeah, we were actually. And I said, okay, well, could you just do do that? And at least then she's attending in, in some way. And um, they did it. Wow. And guess what? She yeah. started attending. And uh, that that's the thing is, is that. It's almost like you're saying the obvious I, thing to it. I like it because it's it's the obvious answer, but it's probably not the answer that they thought of. You're saying, do you know what I mean? It's it that is the reason why she was attending before. It's a huge change, but because we've all sort of dealt with these big changes of the pandemic and things going back to normal and things going back again, we don't sort of think about it from their point of view. She's seen that school can work that way, so why can't it work that way now? It's it's obvious, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is, and also as yeah. well, she's autistic. Autistic people are incredibly yeah. good at logic, and that's it a completely is. logical thing to do. I mean, it's completely yeah, logical completely. for her. She's too anxious to be able to come into school. There has been various variants. She's a bit scared to come in, and, and also the sensory overload of going from being at home to being in school is too much for her. She's told you all of this. She's yeah. very eloquent. You know, she's at a secondary school. She's a bright, mainstream yeah. kid, and she's told you exactly what she wanted, so why don't you just yeah. give it to her? And and it and it, it worked, and then she did come in for certain events and things. So you know that was a relatively easy fix. But the thing is about it, right? It's like again, right? We are under duress as a teaching profession. We have yep. been for years. Okay, it's been it's bad. Okay, this has been the worst term that I've ever known. And when you are stressed, it's very difficult to be curious. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So so back to cortisol and back to the kind of sensory system and and the window of tolerance. It's not just 
your students who have a window of tolerance and, a, and, and you know, the stress hormone cortisol, mm-hmm. you have them too, right? And your window of tolerance is going to be extremely open in September when you've just had a six weeks holiday and very, very tightly shut yeah. in the last week of term. Okay. So you're going to say no. Okay. And it's not your fault that you're saying no, right? It's just that you can't imagine things when you're stressed. You can't think just in one day at a time, just surviving. Yeah. Because we were all doing that at the moment. We've all like literally the entire nation has had a massive, massive Mm. adverse experience. You know, we've all been through a huge trauma right? It's still going on. There's still a pandemic where, you know, we're yeah. looking at Omicron now, aren't we? And, it, you know, and so in that, give yourself a break, right? If you need somebody else to come in and say something blindingly obvious to you, it's because I'm not as close to yeah. the problem as you are. So, you know, it's not, it's not that difficult for me to come in and say, okay, well, yeah. have you tried this? Because I can sit with fresh eyes and I'm not as, I'm not as close to it as you are. So I can be a bit more objective. And the other amazing thing about being dyslexic is you get mm-hmm. the helicopter view. So one of the good things about being a dyslexic teacher is you can see things in yeah. a much broader sense, you know, so I can look at the con- conduit parts of something and say, okay, well, what if we move this around like this and this and this, and that's why, you know, that's, that's why it's great to be a neurodivergent teacher is because you see yeah, things Yeah, and that's what people need, isn't it? Like you say, people are stressed. It's no reflection on their practice if they are struggling. It's just no. it takes somebody else's eyes, doesn't it? And somebody else's point of view who might be less stressed and, and less under pressure at the moment to be able to go into that situation and say, actually, have you tried this? And that's really important. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, like I, I look at sort of like, you know, I get people's re- behaviour. You know, the schools that have that C system and they have like a yes. behaviour system. And, and, I, and I look at... I look at, you know, I look at her her sheet of, you know, she's had 12 things in a day. And I look at it and I think, well, one of them was for rolling her mm-hmm. eyes. You know, one of them was for being sarcastic. I'm like, actually, do you know what? That says, that is the teacher yeah. being stressed. Okay. That's not persistent disruptive behavior. That's the teacher being stressed. So let's look at, let's go and see if we can deal with this teacher's stress first and foremost, Right. And the problem is, is that you are there day after day after day and your timetable is unlikely to have that you have a free lesson once a day. It's more likely that you're going to get six, six period day on one day and then the next day you've got like half yeah. an hour, you've got an hour. Do you know? So you don't get a break. So sometimes you'd be t- you've been teaching for days and days and days straight and then someone wrote some sarcastic little um, child like rolls their eyes at you and you think, right, that's it, I'm yeah. giving a behavior point. But it's understandable at that point that you might not have the best judgment. So let's deal with the teacher's stress. If you deal with the teacher's stress and you're given an opportunity to debrief and say, oh, my God, it's hard, isn't it? And say, look, you know, this is really difficult. The job that you're doing on a day-to-day basis, you get up, you come here like 7.30 in the morning, you're here till 6 o'clock at night, you're putting the hours in day after day after day. It's okay if you find it hard because it's hard. Yeah. I think that's really good. Really, really important. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was your new YouTube channel. I've been watching it. You've, I've seen this two episodes so far. I don't know if there's been any more since I last looked, but that I would recommend to anyone who's listening to have a have a look at them because they're really, really interesting. They're sort of, they're short and snappy and they give real life examples of um, situations and things, you, ways you've dealt with them. And um, yeah, I just want you to talk. Could you tell us about your first one? So the first one is It Doesn't Matter They're Autistic. And it's about a little girl called Kylie. Yeah. And I found that one really interesting. I wondered if you would tell the story. Yes. 
So, uh, so I worked, um, I've worked in several special schools, but this particular one was really close to my heart. So I worked in a special school, uh, which was a straight through school. So this was a a woman, she was a young woman, she's just about turned 18. Um, and she was really lovely, non-speaking autistic girl who, um, was a really like friendly, good laugh, really like just the sweetest, kindest girl, but she was very Mm -hmm. tall, right? She was kind of a bit like oh, wow. Serena Williams. She was a big, tall, strong, athletic girl, but just the loveliest, sweetest, kindest, just a wonderful character that yeah. we all really liked. You know, she's great fun and everything. Anyway, her behavior really rapidly, rapidly changed over the course of a week. And no one could get near her. And she was throwing chairs and pushing people off her. And she usually be a really huggy person. And oh, she gosh. was not at all. And she was just like, no one could, she was just really, really will change in her behavior. And no one could really understand why. And then eventually got to the point where she ran out into the playground as she was grabbing handfuls oh, of gravel goodness. and rubbing them into her face. And um, so we, we called a doctor and the doctor just took a look out the window and went, oh, well, yeah, that's autistic behavior. She's she's autistic. And then just got in his car and drove away. And the thing is, like, we knew that she was autistic because it was a school for autistic yeah. children. So, hey, <laughs> guess what? She's autistic, like all the other 300 kids that are here. But also as well, we knew that that wasn't the usual behavior yes. for Kylie. So so eventually two members of staff managed to get her into the car. They had permission from the mum, so they took her to A&E. They managed to take her temperature, and she had a temperature oh of goodness. 40. It turns out she had a really chronic urinary tract infection and she'd been rubbing the gravel into her face to oh cool herself goodness. down. Yeah. So this was a sensory behavior that um, was very, very unusual. She got better. She didn't rub gravel in her face anymore. But you see how the kind of moral of the story is that behavior yeah. is communication. And in that case, when you work with, this is another thing, I think it should be compulsory really to go and work in a special yeah. school for a couple of years is when you work with these kinds of kids, especially nonverbal children, you can learn so much about communication from a yeah. nonverbal person. The no, it's true. There is you know, absolutely you know, true that you do. Yeah, and I've worked with non-speaking kids. Like I had to do a handover when I left my last job, and I was speaking to somebody about um, about this child. This child, and I've been speaking to them for like ten minutes before I realised that he's he was non-speaking, and I hadn't <laughs> told them <laughs> because I was just so used to like. You know, we communicate yeah, through other I means. Think that's lovely. Just... That shows that you know the child. You know what I mean, and you care about that child because that isn't the obvious thing to say about them at that time. You're just thinking about them. Well, well yeah. And then what I'm doing, what I'm doing with this, the YouTube channel is a se- the the first kind of like series of ten is going to be like some little case yeah. studies of kids that I've worked with, and it's mainly about sensory and how what you can learn from their sensory mm-hmm. needs. And um, I feel like the things that I've learned, the, the, the kids teach you things, yeah. right? It's a teaching and learning process. And I have learned more from my autistic learners than I have from any lecture on my, um, on, on my master's course in autism or anything that I've read. It's understanding when you understand it, like you can hear the story of an actual individual, then it really brings it home. And it's, you know, it's a small YouTube channel that's really, really growing. And I would, I would love it if people would come and watch it. So it's, it, it's neuro teachers on your, on, um, on the YouTube channel. And they're really short. They're kind of like between one and three minutes long. 
and hopefully you get some information and you understand uh, a little bit about what the autistic experience yeah. is like. I, it's what struck me was how good they would be for training at schools, you know, as part of like Twilight or just as like a, a staff exactly. meeting and just, just show it because they're so short and snappy. So people don't have very much time, do they? But, you know, put them well, on and then discuss them afterwards and what I love about everything you do is it's all centered around children you know your articles Mm -hmm. your vlogs your website everything your YouTube channel is not talking because you're a very clever lady I can tell but it's not talking about like the specifics and the theory it's always bringing it back to the child and that's what it needs to be isn't it it's bringing it back to that child and these examples and how it actually affects that child and how what we can learn from them and I loved I'm going to ask you to spoil your YouTube channel by telling us could you tell them about Ben? Because I loved this one about concentration. I just thought oh, that yeah. was beautiful. Ben, he's, ben, he was just amazing and an absolutely amazing artist. Like you could just, like he was a visionary, yeah. right? That's how I describe him. He was a visionary. So he's autistic, year 10 boy, and he just wasn't concentrating in yeah. geography. And his geography teacher really liked him and couldn't understand why on earth he didn't find plate tectonics the most fascinating <laughs> thing in the, in the world. So I was asked to go and observe him and he was just kind of, having this amazing sensory experience where he's, I, I, I demonstrate yeah, it on the I love video. the way you demonstrate it. People need to go over to the YouTube channel and look at the way you do this. I, I, I was, yeah. I would love for you to see this, but it's just like, I, I can't do this on a podcast, <laughs> but he's just, he's, he's staring into them into the middle distance, but following the dust particles round because there's like, you know, there's the projector that works on the smart board and it's obviously got three different colors mm-hmm. underneath it as well. So it's, that's why the picture on the front is like this rainbow dust, right? Right, on the on the picture on the blog on my website um he's getting really involved in this whole universe of the dust coming out there and 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 probably like thinking about pieces of art he can do and how he can draw them and everything and I can't emphasize enough what an amazing artist he was but he wasn't concentrating on the geography yeah. which his geography teacher felt he had a good chance of getting a good GCSE in and it was a means to him getting onto his art foundation course eventually um so we we did we we had a look at what was going on and and I we I have to emphasize to you so Ben's concentration was yes. excellent it just wasn't concentrating on what Mr Drake wanted <laughs> him to concentrate on I love that he was concentrating on the dust and he was probably concentrating not- more than anybody else in the class <laughs> yeah he probably had the most tremendous concentration of anybody mm. in that entire class of 30 yeah. right it just wasn't on yeah. geography Okay, so what we needed to do was firstly, he needed to regulate insofar as his sensory system, he he was kind of what you would call hypersensitive. So insofar as he would hyposensitive, not hyposensitive. So his sensory system was a bit like he was a bit of a low registration kind of a child. So he would go into daydream. But these daydreams were phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Right. And also very useful to him. So you want, don't want to stop them completely. You just want to get him out of it enough for him to be able to concentrate in geography. So we gave him some sensory activities to do before his lesson. And also if he needed to during the lesson. Yeah. And that just brought him back into his window of tolerance so he could be calm, alert and ready to learn. So that I explain all that in the blog and it's also on the, it's also on the YouTube yeah. channel. Um, and then, um, we also gave him joint attention. So he loved, he loved like Marvel characters and superheroes and things like that. So the teacher would kind of like bring little pictures into every single worksheet or every single slide. He put these little bobble heads around the classroom. So Ben would look at the front Brilliant. of the classroom and go, oh, look, it's, you know, oh, look, it's Captain Marvel. Oh, look, it's so-and-so. It's other well-known characters <laughs> from 
films. Um, and that would just like, he would find it funny because Ben had an amazing sense of humour. And Mr. Drake and him did have a really good re- yeah. relationship with each so other. That's important. the thing. They did really like each other. And it really, really worked very well. So he would just think, right, okay, so how can I like get this child yeah. in? All right, so just t- tiny little pictures or tiny little things. And Ben would, he would see how quickly Ben could spot them and it became a competition. And then Ben would be like, oh yeah, this is really cool because I'm going to have this game to play when I go to get to geography. I love geography and I love Mr. Drake. And in the end, you know, he ended up getting a decent GCSE and he got onto the, onto the next course. Brilliant. So it worked really, really well. Um, but it just goes to show that like, you know, um, again, just having somebody else to come in and say that this, this child is concentrating really, really well. He's just not concentrating yes. on what you wanted to do. And we can do a lot yeah, about that. I love it. Absolutely brilliant. So um, people wanting to find you, because I'm sure people will listen to this, will be inspired and be wanting, probably wanting you to help them. So where can they go? What's, what should they be doing? Where can they find you? Okay, so I have a uh, website, which is www.neuroteachers.com. And that has uh, the blogs on it, which uh, each of the blogs has a link also to the YouTube channel. Well, a lot of them have a lot of links to the YouTube channel, but also there if you want to find out about events. So if you're interested in anxious non-tenders, um, demand avoidant phenomena or anything else that I've mentioned in here, um, just general differentiation for autistic children, uh, distressed behavior and so on and so forth. I have a various different events for that. Um, I have the YouTube channel, which is called NeuroTeachers. Mm-hmm. I have a Facebook page and a Facebook group, which is called Neuroteachers. My Facebook page has all of the all of the blogs on it, but I also put lots and lots of other resources and materials on there. So there's loads of stuff for demand avoidant behaviour on there, and um, you know there's there's social stories. There's all kinds of information on the on the um, Facebook uh, group. I am on um, I'm on Instagram as well as it's Neuroteachers UK. I'm on Pinterest as Neuroteachers UK. And I'm on LinkedIn as Katrina Lowry. And I was also say I'm on Twitter, Twitter as at Neuroteachers. Yes, I talk a lot on Twitter because it's very short. And I like things which are very short and brief, which is why my blogs will not take you more than three minutes to read. And neither will my videos <laughs> take you more than three minutes to watch. Because I know that teachers are time short and they need the information now, but they also need it in a nicely presented, nice short way that tells you about a child. And I always say, you need to think about the child in mind. Yes. So when you come to me, bring you a child in your mind with you and I will talk to you about how to work with the child Brilliant. in mind. Thank you so much. You've been an absolute wonderful guest. <laughs> Thank you. It's been really lovely to meet Thank you. Thank you. Wow, wasn't she interesting? I could have chatted to her all day and I don't know about you, but I feel like I've learned so much in the last 50 minutes. So Katrina did list all of her links, but in case you missed any, her website is www.neuroteachers.com. Thanks again for listening to Send in the Experts with Georgina Durant. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, share on social media that you've been listening along, and maybe even write us a little review. (laughs) See you next time.